The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. What a fascinating way to start a book. It's widely believed that this is the earliest account of Jesus of Nazareth. Papias, an early church father from around 100 AD, he attributes this writing to John Mark, the same guy who traveled with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Many scholars down through history, maybe more interestingly, have identified this author with the young man at the end of this book, uh, the guy who was there at the arrest of Jesus. It says that he was wearing a, a linen tunic, and one of the soldiers grabbed him, so he slipped out of the tunic to get away, and he ran away naked. Now, what makes this so curious, this story, is that it's so random. Like, why would anyone possibly include this detail about this naked young man unless it happened, unless you were there and saw it, unless it happened to you? Which is to say, this whole book reads like an eyewitness account. And yet, reading this account, the Gospel of Mark, alongside of others, Matthew, Luke especially, Something curious emerges. Mark has no Christmas story. Surely someone who hung out with the disciples, who followed the Apostle Paul around, who, who knew personally Mary, the mother of Jesus, surely this author would have heard of the star of, of Herod the Great, of the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, of the Magi. But when it's Mark's turn to tell the story of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, coming into the world, he gives no hint of the nativity. Rather, he seems to want to tell us a different Christmas story, one that is hiding in plain sight in these very words. So I want to highlight a couple things, show you a couple things that, that might not be immediately apparent in this translation. If you were reading this in an ancient, ancient manuscript of the Gospel of Mark, the script itself would give away something that our script doesn't give away. The script would give away that Mark is not just talking about a story about some king or someone who refers to himself as the Son of God, but the very words are sacred, they're extraordinary. So there's this ancient tradition called sacrum, no, uh, nomen sacrum, which means sacred names. It goes back to at least the 4th century B.C., 5th century B.C., the time of Ezra in the Old Testament. So the people of God, um, they had stopped pronouncing the name of God, which we believe to be Yahweh. Uh, they went back to the, the, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not you know, use the Lord's name in vain. And so in order to not use the Lord's name in vain, they just swallowed it, is the language they used. They stopped saying it every time they came to it. So when they would come to the word Yahweh, instead of pronouncing the sacred name of God, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. By the time we get to Jesus' day, this idea of a sacred name gets expanded beyond just the name of God, but gets extended to all the names, um, all the titles of God, and all the things of God. So words like heaven, and spirit, and Jerusalem, they all become sacred names. Which brings us to this place. Maybe. So this is uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's at the foot of, 
of Mount Sinai there. And in 1844, there was this uh, German scholar, um, Konstantin von Tischendorf, who stopped by this very monastery. And while he was there, he noticed that the monks had taken a wastebasket that they had next to the oven, and they were using the papers, these old papers, for kindling to light up the fire. But when Tischendorf looked down in the wastebasket, he noticed that there was this ancient Greek uh, uh, script on some of these pages. And so he pulled them from the trash and realized that he had found something very, very special what we today call Codex Sinaiticus. It is the oldest complete text of the New Testament in existence. It's nearly 1,700 years old. And, and here's a page from that very text from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. This is the passage right around the time, um, just a little bit later uh, in this, this very chapter, around verse 10 and 11, where it says, He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is when Jesus was baptized. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. Now, I'm guessing that not many of us can read this text, at least not... Um, visually just look at it and immediately read it. But I'm also guessing that whether you know Greek or not, you could probably, if I told you there are sacred names, sacred words in this text, I bet you could point out the ones. See, these three different words, heaven, spirit, my son, they all have a line over the top. And this is what they would do, the type of thing that they would do in these ancient manuscripts. My point is, is that when we read John or Mark chapter 1, we see the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. But when the ancients read this, the text probably looked something more like this. There would have been a line or something signifying that Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, this is sacred words. Mark is not writing about some great man. He's not writing the biography of a teacher. This is not just a king. He's God's king. He's not just a son of God. He is the son of God. Then the name of Jesus is sacred. And the second clue that something else, something more than just a historical account, is going on. The second clue that Mark hasn't completely forgotten about the Christmas story is that Mark calls it the beginning of the good news. Now, if you were an ancient Roman wandering the streets and heard this story um, back in that day, it would sound strangely familiar. In fact, if you were Mark's like eighth grade language arts teacher, you'd probably scold him because he made no reference uh, he didn't cite his reference here, and here's what I mean. So in 9 BC, just uh, nine years before the birth of Christ, maybe 50, 60 years after Mark write, wrote this, um, just a few years before Jesus was born, the Roman proconsul of Asia, a guy named Paulus Fabius Maximus, made a birth proclamation of Caesar Augustus, the great Augustus. You've probably heard of him, one of the top leaders in the history of the world. He literally transformed the world both physically, politically, ideologically. He's the guy who like named a month after himself and it stuck. We still have August because of this guy. So here's his birth proclamation. It was posted in cities all over the Roman Empire and it reads like this. Providence has set all things in perfect order by giving us Augustus whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit, benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants. 
that he might end war and arrange all things. And the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. That's what the inscription in towns all over the Roman Empire, in the center of town, carved in marble for all to read, was this inscription. Did you hear that? Providence has given us a God, Augustus, a Savior. He will bring peace on earth. His birth has begun for us a new era in humanity. That The appearance of Augustus, the coming of Caesar Augustus, is the beginning of the good news. And this, this is how Mark chooses to begin his Christmas story. No baby lying in a manger, no angels harking the herald, no shepherds keeping watch. Rather, Mark invites us to reimagine Christmas, to set aside the nostalgia, the quiche that clutters our minds this time of year, and give serious consideration to how the coming of Jesus changed not only our world, but your world, your life. Mark immediately gives us this this comparison in our minds between Caesar Augustus and Jesus of Nazareth. Now, to us, stepping back and looking from this historical perspective, this might make sense. I mean, these are two great ancient personalities. But remember, when Mark wrote this gospel just a few decades after Jesus was nailed to a cross, Augustus had literally reshaped the whole world around them. The declaration, Caesar is Lord, was on the lips of every Roman. The whole kingdom, the whole known world was covered with his army. Rome itself had had forced people from every tribe and tongue and nation into submission. And through fear and power, they had brought a peace unlike the world had ever seen, the Pax Romana. Meanwhile, the name of Jesus, when Mark wrote this, the name of Jesus was still widely unknown. In his life, he had no wealth, no armies, no political power, made no great writings. He left nothing to us but a handful of people to tell his story. And he died a criminal, humiliated on a Roman cross. So when Mark's writing this, his followers were still so small and so unheard of and so impoverished that most of the world leaders had never even heard of him or of this movement. To compare Jesus... To Augustus must have seemed ridiculous. In fact, if you look at like ancient, uh, ancient graffiti that you find in Pompeii and in Rome, you'll find that ancient Romans found this type of comparison comic, ridiculous, foolishness. And yet, and yet, and yet, these, the earliest Christians, the earliest father, followers of Jesus, they persisted. No, Jesus is the rightful king of kings. His kingdom is eternal. He brings a peace that passes understanding. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. It's almost like Mark could see 2,000 years in the future and see that in 2,000 years, very few people would have ever read the inscription about the birth proclamation of Augustus. And yet, his story, his Christmas story, his birth proclamation of Jesus would transform the world. 
It would literally cut history in half. Jesus' coming would be the decisive moment, not only in history or global politics, but in every human heart. The proclamation, the good news, was not just decisive for the world, but it would be decisive for you and for me. So we're in this series called Reimagined, in which we're taking seriously Jesus' invitation to repent, to change the way we think, to change the way we view the world, to change the way we view our lives and ourselves and God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That this kingdom has broke out, it's here among us now, and it should change the way we think and live. Today is our Christmas edition. So far in the series, we've like followed Jeremiah the prophet to the potter's house, and we looked at the, the upside-down blessings in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Jesus led us on a very dark, dark journey into our own hearts. This week, we're going to let Mark retell the Christmas story. Not the story of how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but how the coming of Jesus marks the decisive moment in human history and our lives. He continues like this, verse 2. As it is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet. So he immediately starts out, he's going to lead us. He's going to say, if you want to understand the present, if you want to understand what God's doing right now, you need to look back. And he takes us to the 700-year-old prophecy of Isaiah. And it reads like this. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Like you don't need to know anything about this prophecy or Isaiah to appreciate the impact, to feel it. God's people, the world, has been waiting 700 years for this moment, for this birth proclamation of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But if you dig in just a little bit deeper into what Mark's up to here, you're going to find that something a little bit more sophisticated than just a proof text from in the book of Isaiah. This, this prophecy right here that he pulls out, it has layers of nuance. If it were, were a dessert, it would be a parfait. Or better, a tiramisu with like a really, really good double espresso. This is not just a quote from Isaiah. He has layered Isaiah chapter 40 seamlessly with Exodus 23 and Malachi 3. So Exodus 23, this is um, right after, this is the beginning of something new. Right after God had pulled his people, these, these tribal sheep herders, out of slavery in Egypt, he pulled them out into the wilderness and said, I'm setting you free. You are going to be for me my treasured possession, a kingdom, a priest. And then in the wilderness, God says to them, Exodus chapter 23, I'm going to send a messenger, an angel to go before you, to lead you to me, to lead you home. Mark pulls that out, and then he pulls Malachi chapter 3, the very end. So if, if Exodus 23 is at the very beginning of God's work with his people, calling them to be his treasure possession and, and a kingdom of priests, Malachi chapter 3 is at the very end of the Old Testament. It's literally the last page of the Old Testament for most of us. It's the final word on God's work under the law of Moses. Moses started this process setting the people free. Now at the very end, we hear this same promise repeated. I'm going to send a messenger to go before you, to lead you home to me. Mark takes these two lines from the very beginning and the very end of God's work through the law of Moses, and he layers them together with Isaiah chapter 40. 
And this chapter, this chapter is not just any chapter. It is the turning point in the book of Isaiah. God's people up to this point have lost all connection with God. They forgot who they were. They forgot their God. They are literally at the lowest point. They're self-destructing. And there, at the lowest point that they've ever been, when it felt like all was lost, when God's people had lost a sense of who they were, who their God is, how they could possibly dig their way out of this. Then Isaiah begins singing, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. That judgment will not be the last word. God will never give up on his people. He will heal them. He will save them. He will call them home. And the sign that God is going to call them home the sign that the time has come, the sign that the, ta- the, the pages turn, that we're done with the judgment, we're done with you running away, and it's time to come home, is a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Someone's going to go out into the wilderness and prepare a road for you to come home. Mark says, that's it. It's begun. God is calling his children from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to himself. He's calling you home. And the sign that we've been waiting for, he unpacks it in verse 4. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, that the way home to God has something to do with repentance for the forgiveness of our sins, repentance, changing our minds, changing the way we view ourselves, who we are, who our God is, what life is all about, that something in our lives, in our hearts, in our world is blocking us from God. Something in us and in our world is keeping us from coming home to God. Something makes us want to hide, want to run, want to seek everything else except God. And John is the voice that says, stop running. Stop hiding. Stop chasing after things that you know will not satisfy you. Go home to God no matter what you've done. He's your father. You're his children. He wants you to come home. He's calling out. He's waiting for you. Will you come home? And this, this return to God, this identification as the children of God, this was symbolized in baptism. Verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this guy that we see in this verses, he's not someone you would see in the courts of Rome or even in the courts of Jerusalem. And that's the point. John, like Elijah, the prophet of old, He stands, everything in his life stands as a rebuke, a rejection of everything this world hopes in. He is a man who has heard the call from God to come home. So he turns his back on prosperity, on wealth, and apparently on personal hygiene. Not because they're evil, 
but because they're too little, because they're deceiving, because they're distracting. Why would he possibly give his life to these things when they stand in the way of the call to go home to God? So he rejects the city, he rejects power, he rejects status and the authorities of the world, not because power is all evil, but because they're nothing compared to the power of the one who made the world. Not because the city's not a nice place to live, but because it might distract him from his true calling. Verse 9, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now this is curious. Jesus was baptized. Of course, Jesus never ran from God. He never hid from God. He never refused God in his life. He knew he was a child of God, the son of God. He did not need to identify his life with God. He is God. So the question comes, why? Why was Jesus baptized? And it's not because he needed to identify with God. He did it to identify with us. So follow, follow this logic that Mark is, is taking us through here. This is the most un-Caesar-like thing that you can imagine. Everything Caesar Augustus did was to make himself great, to exalt himself. His coming showed that he is different, he is better, he is unlike you in every way. He alone had the power and the glory and the strength and the wealth. Everything from his royal clothing to his palace to his armies to his immense wealth is designed to keep you separate from him. But when Jesus shows up, what's the first thing this king does, this Messiah? He identifies with you and me. With broken people, with sinners, with people who've been running from God, with people who are still very much in the struggle. He does not show his greatness by separating himself from us. He shows his greatness by identifying with us. And this... This brings us to the moment that Mark wants us to see the heart of the Christmas story, if you can call it that. The heart of the story of why it's so important, so decisive that Jesus came. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he's being baptized by John here. He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So when Jesus, the very Son of God, the King of Kings, humbly identifies with us, get this, the barrier, the sin, the rebellion, the doubt, the fear, all the stuff that separates us from God who is in heaven, all the stuff that stops us from going home to him, from turning to him, all the stuff that makes us want to hide and run from him, it gets torn in two. The phrase here, he saw heaven being torn open. It's literally tearing in two. It's, it's the same word we get the English word schism from, to be torn in two. It's the same word that Mark will use to describe what happened in the temple when the veil was torn, when Jesus died on the cross for us. Mark says, this is the decisive moment. It's the Christmas message. It's the birth proclamation of Jesus that the barrier between you and God, all the things you think are holding you back, they're torn in two. And the Spirit of God is breaking through it. 
Jesus has identified with you so that if you just stop running, if you just stop hiding, if you just recognize who you are, if you just will hear the call of God, you will know who you are. A child of God, you'll know who he is, your father. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has identified with you in your hurt, in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your sin, so that you can come home to the Father. That's the point. So that you can know that God the Father looks at you because you're identified with Jesus and says over you, you are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I've recently had a number of conversations with people in our congregation over family of origin issues. And something that I'm continually amazed by is the impact, the effect that parents have on people decades and decades and decades after they leave home. I don't care if you're 70 years old. It's like you never really escape the influence of your parents. Whether you feel close to your parents or you completely reject them, either way, your life is fundamentally shaped by your response to your parents, by your relationship with your parents. And as a parent myself, it's humbling. This parent-child relationship, it taps into something deep within us, something fundamentally human that at the most basic level, as much as we need food and shelter, we need to know that we're loved by our parents. We need to know that our Father loves us. And that's what the baptism of Jesus is about. Verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Jesus knows our temptation. He knows our suffering. He knows what it feels like to be left in the wilderness. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, John the Baptist, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The phrase here translated, the time has come, is the perfect tense. And the reason why this is important is that it means it's something that happened in the past but has an ongoing present influence, an ongoing implications, a present reality. The message that was preached so long ago isn't just something that happened in the past. It's for you right now. Like if you're running from God, if you're hiding from God, if you feel far from God, if you don't know whether the Father loves you or not, the time has come right now. Mark says this is your decisive moment. Jesus came into the world to call you home. I don't care what you've done or what's been done to you. You are a child of God. You are loved by the Father. And he wants you to come home. He wants you to know that he loves you. Now, repent. Change the way you see yourself. Change the way you view the world. Reimagine what life is like when you know who you are, a child of God. When you know who God is, your Father who loves you. That's 
Mark's Christmas message. That's why Jesus came into the world. Merry Christmas, church.